0: Point of everything. Christ, the risen Savior and the Jesus. Pray that this Christmas season you did come and adore the Savior, Jesus, the Christ, born that you might have life. He is in fact worthy. He does deserve all the glory. I hope you had a very merry Christmas that you spent time considering the Savior. That yes, you got to spend it maybe with family or friends, and you got to open a gift or two perhaps, but that you really spent time thinking on the best gift, the reason why we celebrate Christmas, the baby born in the manger, that we might have life. And maybe you didn't, and that's okay, you have today that you might be able to do that. We don't just worship Jesus Christ on Christmas and Easter, we worship him every day of the year, and so New Year's Eve is just as good of a day as any to think on and consider the Savior and what he's done in your life and what he might do next year. Well, I am a lover of movies. In fact, I don't know that I've met many movies that I don't love. Uh, As Dave and I have had many conversations, Dave is a bit of a literature connoisseur. He enjoys the finer things. I'm more of a buffet kind of guy. So most movies are just fine to me. But for for about 10 years, the... Avengers franchise has been putting out compelling movies that so many in our culture have been going to see because they have done what few other movie franchises have been able to do. Over the course of 23 movies, they have produced varied storylines, each standing on its own, and yet unified in one central arc, one theme throughout the whole thing. A Spider-Man movie might have been about Spider-Man and his villain, but underneath that, was the greater narrative of what's going on with Thanos behind the scene. Everyone stays for those end credit scenes, right? At first, there was just the one end credit scene. You had to stay all the way to the very end. And then they got so popular that they started putting them like halfway through the end credits, So you'd have like two end credit scenes. And so everybody wants to stay for those because those are where you're going to get a sneak peek, a foreshadowing of the bigger story that's at work. You might have seen some of it in the movie itself, but you'll see it in those end credits. So while Spider-Man and his villain may have been the theme of the movie, the bigger war going on is Thanos and what's happening behind the scenes. Likewise, the scriptures have individual narratives in them about David and Goliath, about Daniel in the lion's den, or Moses on Mount Sinai. And yet, there's a larger narrative that the Lord is seeking to weave through the entirety of the scriptures, both old and new. The great pastor and theologian, Augustine, living in about the 5th or 6th century, he actually hated the scriptures before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He found them to be boring and dull particularly the Old Testament, he found to be boring and dull. It was rather brutish in the way it was both written and the content of which it was written about. He found little to love in it compared to the philosophy and poetry of his time. So he didn't waste his time on it until he came to faith in Christ. And he began sitting underneath the preaching of a man named Ambrose. And Ambrose opened to him and showed him how all the stories of the Old Testament were more than just standing on their own, they painted a larger picture. One author writing about Augustine in his life says it this way, Augustine realized that the whole of the Old Testament was a journey toward Jesus Christ. Thus, he found the key to understanding the beauty and even the philosophical depth of the Old Testament and grasped the whole unity of the mystery of Christ in history, as well as the synthesis between philosophy, rationality, and faith in the logos, in Christ, the eternal word who was made flesh. You see, it wasn't until Augustine saw that the individual stories of the Bible were telling one grander narrative that he saw and appreciated the scriptures for what they are. That the central narrative is that Jesus Christ has come to save the sinner and to recreate the whole world. And in so seeing this, in old and in new, Augustine saw the beauty and even the depth of the scriptures. Well, this morning's passage is a passage a bit like that. On the surface, our passage today seems rather narrative and just... Things are happening. Yes, angels are showing up. Dreams are happening. And Jesus' family makes two moves in the process. But God is doing something much bigger. In fact, he's pulling together, much like those in-credit scenes do, the gospel writer Matthew is pulling together Old Testament ideas and saying, let me show you something about who Jesus is. And we're going to need to step back in order to see our passage correctly today. Well, before we read, let us pray, and then we'll jump into Matthew chapter 2. Will you pray with me? Father, what a privilege it is to gather with your church on the cusp of a new year, where we have so many hopes and dreams for the future, yet all of our hopes and our dreams can be fully satisfied in what you have provided in your Son, Jesus Christ. This morning, as we gather around your word, Would your Son be exalted? Would the gospel be clearly proclaimed? And would your Holy Spirit do the work in the hearts of believers and sinners that my words cannot change and renew, bring to life and bring faith, increase the love of each one for the Savior, Jesus Christ? Help us to see him clearly now as we examine your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you read with me? It'll be on the screen uh, and it'll be in your bulletin or in your copy of God's word. I will begin reading in Matthew chapter 2 verse 13. There it says, now when they, the they that's being written of there, that's the wise men, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, as I said, this larger narrative where this text is set in is something we're going to have to step away from. We're going to have to step away from this text for just a minute to get the bigger picture of what is going on. You see, God's redemptive history didn't begin when Jesus stepped onto this earth. God's plan for redemption began before the foundation of the world. And he's been setting events in motion to get us to the point where Jesus shows up and he has to flee to Egypt and return. In fact, we have to go back into Israel's past to a man named Moses. Many of you know him and you know some about him. Let, us, let me refresh our memories for those who need it. Moses was an Israelite who led the Jews out of Egypt. When they were slaves in Egypt, Moses came and he does the classic let my people go. If you've read the scriptures or you've maybe you've seen the movie, you say let my people go and after 10 plagues, Moses is the head of the leaders that goes out and brings the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, Moses for the Jews is what George Washington would be for Americans. He is the very finest of what it means to be a Jew. You see, for Moses, he was the first leader that they had, the one that led them to independence. He's what every Jew longs for. If only we had a leader like Moses again, that's what they would have been thinking in the first century. They longed for one who would personally meet with God like Moses did, who would receive God's law like Moses did, who would bring this covenant to Israel like Moses did. And at the end of Moses' life, the nation of Israel is right on the cusp of the promised land, the land that God said he will give them when they cross over the Jordan. And Moses, before letting the nation go over, he gathers them up and he preaches a sermon. That sermon is recorded for you and for me in the book of Deuteronomy. And there, about halfway through that sermon, Moses talks about someone that the Israelites should be looking out for. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. God says, I will rise up. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak them all to I uh, speak all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. See, part of the way through the sermon, Moses says, "Every Israelite, be on the lookout. there's a new Moses coming. There's another person who's going to look and sound and, and talk a lot like me. All the things that God did in Moses, he's going to do it again. In this new figure, this new Moses, one like him is going to be raised up. Now, interestingly, none of the Old Testament prophets, though they spoke the word of God, claimed to be this new Moses. Not Jeremiah, not Isaiah, not Ezekiel. Nobody said, hey, I'm the guy Moses was talking about. But now we enter into our text. Matthew chapter 2. And consider the story for just a minute and start to feel some of the similarities between Jesus and Moses here. Jesus comes into a kingdom where the king is obsessed with keeping his power. King Herod is seeking to kill all the baby boys because he's looking for the one who would overthrow his authority. But the baby Jesus is saved by the actions of his parents Being warned in a dream, his dad takes his mom and he sends off to Egypt. And then, after Herod dies, Jesus returns from Egypt. He comes back to the place where he left. Moses, likewise, has Pharaoh seeking to kill all the baby boys, including Moses. Moses is saved by the action of his parents. His mom put him in a basket and led him into the river. And when Pharaoh dies, Moses once again leaves Egypt with all the Israelites this time. If you want to feel some more of the similarities, in Exodus chapter 2, we read, When Pharaoh heard of Moses killing one of the Egyptian guards, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, or Exodus chapter 4. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. You see, the parallels that Matthew is drawing here seem to be pretty clear. Jesus and Moses are linked. In fact, Jesus is this new Moses that Israel has been looking for, the one that Moses talked about. There's going to be a prophet like me. God will raise him up, he will be like me, and you will listen to him. This is not something Matthew's manufacturing as if he wants to convince you, oh no, Jesus, he's definitely that new Moses. Let me show you all the ways. Matthew's merely conveying what God has already done. You see in our text, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in verse 13 and told him, rise and take the child to Egypt. Likewise, when they're in Egypt, he receives in another dream, you can come back now. The one who is seeking to kill Jesus is now dead himself. And so God is orchestrating all these events so that we might see and the writer Matthew might pull together for us the fact that Jesus is this new Moses, the one who was written of in the scriptures. You see, Jesus' flight to Egypt and Herod's killing of the sons in Bethlehem and Jesus' return to Nazareth were all for the purpose that the scriptures might be fulfilled. It says it right there in our text. Verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And again, in verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Then in verse 23, and when he went and lived in Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Everything in our text today was because God had already set these events into motion. He planned this from before the foundation of the world that we might see that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he will be. When Jesus grows up, he says, I am the one who you've been waiting for. And God set it up long ago that we might see it, that Jesus is that new Moses. Specifically, I want to narrow in on those prophecies, those fulfillments that we see in our text. Let's look now at that first section. The angel says to Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now you remember Herod's trying to hold on to power here. He hears of another king that's come. The wise men show up at his doorstep. Hi, we're here to see the newborn king. And Herod, Herod thinks, I didn't have a son recently. No, we're not talking about him. We're talking about another newborn king whose star is up in the sky. And Herod starts to panic and he tells the wise men, go ahead, go go find him, hoping that Herod might find him and kill him. But being warned in a vision, the wise men depart a different way and Herod is furious. And so he's going to seek to kill Jesus, but Joseph is warned. So what does he do? And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, remaining there until the death of Herod, so that the prophet might be fulfilled. This prophecy that God says, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is from Hosea chapter 11. In that particular passage, the prophet Hosea is speaking on God's behalf and he's referencing Israel coming out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, in that slavery when Moses led them out, God led Israel out of Egypt. And yet, Matthew takes that particular prophecy and he says, That one's about Jesus. Hosea 11, that's about Jesus coming out of Egypt. Once Herod dies, the link is that there's a connection between Israel and Jesus. We see that it is Jesus who comes out of Egypt, who is God's true son. Israel, or Jesus will stand in Israel's place and doing the thing Israel was never able to do. You know, for all the years they tried, for all the years that they were allowed to give, have the opportunity, they never faithfully followed God's law. They made promises to do so repeatedly, but they never did it. But Jesus shows up, and he's going to do what Israel can. He's going to stand in their place. He's going to fulfill God's law, and he's going to fulfill all the scriptures, including this one, that it is out of Egypt that he will come. Well, he was born in Bethlehem, but he had to go to Egypt so that this prophecy could be fulfilled. Or likewise, the second prophecy we see here, the prophecy about weeping and lamentations, Herod gets furious and he goes and kills all the sons in Bethlehem and in that surrounding region, two years old and under. And we're told then, the prophet Jeremiah says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. See, Matthew uses this verse from Jeremiah. The verse in Jeremiah is referring to the destruction of Israel when they're taken up into captivity, how the the mothers of Israel are weeping because their sons have been killed by their enemies. And yet in Jesus's day, we see the mothers of Israel are weeping because King Herod has killed their sons in the process of looking for Jesus. Matthew takes this prophecy and says, Do you see how this is Jesus? Do you see how Israel's history is linked to Jesus's life? So that the connections between Jesus and the nation of Israel become very clear to us. Even the use of that Old Testament verse pointing out to the fact that yes, this happened in Israel's life, but this was for fulfillment in Jesus's life. You may be scratching your head for just a minute thinking, well, why did Herod go ahead and kill all the sons that were two years old and under? I thought the wise men showed up at the manger scene. That's what are in all of our front yards, right? It's actually what's in our front yard too. The wise men actually weren't there at the manger scene. Uh, Yes, shepherds, no to wise men. Now that doesn't mean you have to throw out all your nativity scenes. But they weren't there. They showed up sometime afterward. And based on when the star appeared in the sky and when the wise men arrived to Herod, Herod did the math and he calculated, okay, this new king is two years old or under. So I'm going to kill all the sons in Bethlehem and that surrounding region that are two years old and under because I know the wise men were headed to Bethlehem. Moses, or not Moses, Herod is covering his bases, making sure the newborn king will not rise to power. Now, in that time... According to the populations of Bethlehem and the surrounding region, maybe something like 20 sons would have been killed. Uh, In my research, I would have thought it would have been much more, but based on populations, that would have been about 20 kids. And we don't hear about it in Herod's history because Herod did so much else that was awful. But uh, two years and under, Herod killed all the sons. So we see this prophecy, a loud voice of weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. This is fulfilled in the life of Jesus because Herod was looking to keep his power. And then the final prophecy here, after Herod died, another angel appears to Joseph and says, it's okay to go home. Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And then we get this moment where Joseph is headed back with his family, but he doesn't want to go back to Bethlehem because that's where Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, is reigning. And he's a pretty unstable political figure. So Joseph decides, well, I'm going to go back to that town I was from originally. I'm going to go back to Nazareth. That's in the north. It's away from Archelaus. We'll be safe there. He was warned in a dream to go there. And so it was fulfilled by the prophets that he shall be called a Nazarene. You notice there's not a specific text here. It's because there's not a specific prophecy regarding this, but perhaps it's more to speak to the humble nature. For even in Jesus' life, he's told, what good has come out of Galilee, out of Nazareth? No prophet has arisen from there. So the Messiah is to come from a humble place, a place like Nazareth, where no one's expecting anything special to come out of. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God has prepared in the Old Testament. Absolutely everything, every prophecy. This is why in 2 Corinthians 1, we read, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him, we utter our amen to God, to his glory. Even in Jeremiah chapter 31, that beautiful passage on the new covenant, where it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How is God going to accomplish all the things he promised? How is God going to make a new covenant with his people? How is God going to write the law on their hearts instead of on stone tablets? How is God going to make sinful humans his people. All this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Everything comes to its climax in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for Muslims, they believe that Jesus is another prophet. Yes, they believe, and they would say even read the Bible, and what happened with Jesus is what's said here, and yet he was not God's son, he was just another prophet. Like, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, just another one of the messengers along the way. Christians wholly disagree with this. Jesus was not one of the prophets that was to come. In Jesus, everything God was seeking to accomplish in all of human history comes to its fulfillment. Jesus is not another chapter of the story. Jesus is book seven of Harry Potter, the very end. He's episode nine of Star Wars. He's Frodo Baggins in Mordor, ready to throw the one ring into the volcano. It's not one more chapter. Jesus is the climactic moment of human history. All of redemption comes to its central point in Jesus. You know, even today, God's answer for the problem of sin is still Jesus. It was then when he came and he was born in the manger and he said, I've got a new Moses for you. He's going to lead the people. He will be the king. And Jesus is still the answer for you today. Jesus is still the central point of every human life or ought to be. You see, God's answer to the problem of sin is Jesus, not Jesus plus good things. God's answer is not Jesus plus a good job or Jesus plus religious deeds of acting holy or being baptized, taking communion or helping the needy. God's answer for sin is not Jesus plus giving financially to charities, even the church. You see, the gospel of Jesus plus kills the gospel message of Jesus Christ. To add something to Jesus is to say, Jesus wasn't enough. What he did on the cross, what he did in his resurrection, that was maybe most of the way, but there's a couple more things we need to add on to that. Do good enough. Be good enough. Act a certain way. Have a certain position. These destroy the gospel message of Jesus Christ. What the people in Israel were waiting for was this new Moses who would lead the people, give them God's word, and make a new covenant. What they received was Jesus, not Jesus plus. Likewise, you can find everything you need in Jesus. Not a gospel of Jesus plus, Not a gospel plus Jesus plus your own good works. Not a gospel of Jesus plus your nice job or your nice home. Not a gospel of Jesus plus your religious action. A gospel of just Jesus, who died for your sins and rose again. That for whoever believes in him, God gives eternal life. Let me ask you, are you believing any gospel that is a gospel of Jesus plus Is there anything additional you think you need to do? You need to have or you need to be in order for God to love you? In order for God to forgive you? or In order for God to be pleased with you? You see, in Christ, for those who have believed in his name, you are already as loved, forgiven, accepted, and pleasing to God as you can ever be. There's nothing more you can add that would change those things in your life. Christians do not believe in a gospel of Jesus' work plus something else. We believe in a gospel of Jesus alone and nothing else. You see, in the grand narrative of redemption, God has painted it on the canvas of time and space. Jesus stands at the summit, the very top. In his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his coming again, these are the central moment of all of human history. Not human history that we merely find in the scriptures as if it's some sort of invented story, but painted on the very fabric of time and space. God has declared that Jesus is Lord and he is the one we've been waiting for. All of this work was for the central purpose that Jesus might be born King of the Jews, the new Moses, the one who would bring God's covenant. See, in the history of mankind, there has never been nor ever will be someone as worthy of our praise. All glory does indeed belong to Christ. He's the central figure of human history. And I ask you, is he the central figure of your life? Let me pray. Father, we stand in awe of your divine salvation. Your church has spent the last 2,000 years trying to mine the full depth of what you've accomplished in Jesus. And we've yet to exhaust this deep mine of your salvation. We confess that what the angels declared so long ago is true. Jesus is God with us. He is the one who saves his people from their sin. (laughs) Thank you for providing for us such a rich tapestry that we might see your salvation in so many ways. I ask that you would cause each of us here to see your gospel message in a deeper way. Teach us to never add to your way of salvation. Help us by your Holy Spirit to trust and to need Jesus alone for our greatest satisfaction. For the people here whose lives are not centered around Jesus Christ, I ask that you would reveal that to them, that they might see that their life is not built upon the rock of Christ. Convict them of their sin. May they turn from it and lead them to live a life centered around the Savior, in whose name I pray, amen.